Relax. You're quite safe here. <laughs> Good evening, and welcome to Rock Welcome to Rock Strikes 10, the show guaranteed to always give you 10 songs, no more, no less. My name is Joey. I want to thank everybody for tuning into the show here today, whether you're doing it at cnjradio.com or you're subscribed and leaving a star rating and review on iTunes, never missing one single episode. Thank you especially everybody who does that. All right, it is now time for part four of our massive epic five-part retrospective of the year 1997. Tonight is part two of the odds and ends of 1997. For some reason, if you missed the other episodes, and I don't know why, you got to just go back and listen to part one. But the odds and ends are songs that are not on proper studio releases. They are either from soundtracks, live albums, best ofs, tribute albums, things such as that. Basically albums that are never going to make the year-end list for people when they make their best albums list for said years. It's very rare that you see a collection of sorts get put on a best of list for the year. But I'd just like to shine a spotlight on these songs that maybe you kind of missed or maybe they haven't, you know, survived the test of time when it comes to programming and things such as that. But that's why I do a show such as this. Uh, the first song we're going to play here tonight that we're going to focus on is uh, this one's still uh, remembered pretty well, I think, especially if you're a fan of this act. But in 1997, the movie Lost Highway came out. Yeah, it's definitely, and this is saying something, it's definitely one of the weirder David Lynch movies. That is really saying something. But the thing that I think uh, helped out the visibility of the film, which probably would have otherwise just disappeared just due to it being just so weird, is the fact that the soundtrack was completely done 100% by Trent Reznor. And he had done this before, for Natural Born Killers, Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers, but this was the first time that Trent Reznor composed like original score for a feature film, and you know definitely something that uh, was kind of a gateway to what he's almost as known for now as Nine Inch Nails were. You know, I don't, he's never gonna top what he did with Nine Inch Nails, but the fact that he's almost known more as a, a film score guy now, I think uh, this Lost Highway project was a lot more important than even it seemed at the time. But, uh, you know, the Lost Highway soundtrack is really stellar. I mean, Trip Reznor's score aside, you've got a handful of, uh, you know, noteworthy acts. Nine Inch Nails, of course. David Bowie. Lou Reed. The uh, debut of Rammstein into the public conscience. <laughs> and Marilyn Manson had a couple of key tracks on there. An original song by Smashing Pumpkins. So, yeah, great soundtrack. One of the better soundtracks of 1997. And this was the kickoff track to give notice to it. This is Nine Inch Nails with The Perfect Drug. I got my head, but my head is unraveling. Can't keep control, can't keep track of where it's traveling. I got my heart, but my heart's no good. And you're the only one that's understood. I come along, but I don't know where you're taking me. Shaking me, turn off the sun, pull the stars from the sky. The more I give to you, the more I die. 
Kicking off part two of the odds and ends of 1997 and part four of our five-part 1997 retrospective, that was Nine Inch Nails with The Perfect Drug from the Lost Highway soundtrack. Pretty decent soundtrack if you haven't checked it out. Do yourself a favor there. And uh, we didn't really represent a lot of live albums on part one of the odds and ends here, and we're definitely going to make up for that on this episode, starting with this one right here from the album Official Live 101 Proof. And, uh, you know, an unmolested live album. You know, like, I don't hear punch-ups on this re- record. I think it's very on-the-nose, a true live album. This band was always true to their word in the sense of they were very real, and I think their live album shows that. So Pantera 
putting out uh, you know a really killer live album and then at the end of it they throw on a couple of new studio tracks uh, to kind of keep us uh, you know wet the appetite for what would become their last studio record sadly enough but we didn't know that at the time but uh, I think definitely the two new tracks that were on official live definitely uh, were a sign of things to come for the reinventing the steel record they're very groove oriented very cool very heavy as only Pantera could do at this time So here you go. Uh, Maybe you haven't heard this one, but from Official Live, here's a new studio track from Pantera called I Can't Hide. There you go, ending with a classic Pantera breakdown groove right there. And so many bands over the years have tried to copy that style, and they they just don't get it right. It just doesn't seem real. It just seems like they're a carbon copy of it, and that's what made Pantera unique for sure. But there you go. That was I Can't Hide from Official Live 101 Proof. Go check it out if you haven't heard it yet. And uh, not much else to say. I saw Pantera... I think at least four times live, four or five times. I, and, uh, you know, just great memories of those guys. You, you almost can't not get melancholy or bittersweet without talking about Pantera. Uh, yeah, I remember like uh, the year after this, uh, I saw Anthrax with Chris at Trees that year. And I've talked about this before on the show, but, you know, just seeing Diamond Vinny out there, just hanging out, just just being fans of a band like Anthrax. They were just like, they were the people. They were not in VIP. They were down there on the floor with the fans. 
The only difference is they got to go up and jam with the band, but you know, hey, you, you can't blame them for that. I mean, who wouldn't do that if they were given the chance? But yeah, just uh, it's definitely one of the bright points of the Dallas music scene of all time for sure. And uh, we're going to stay heavy here for sure for this next track. Uh, this next track I am going to play you. Definitely, I, I need to explain something before I play it. This is a massive disclaimer, but I, I think it'll make sense in the end. So this next song is by the Melvins, who I always like to call the Andy Kaufmans of hard rock. And so they were on a major throughout the early to mid-90s. They put out three albums for Atlantic, Houdini, Stoner Witch, and Stag. All of them are just excellent, excellent records. So, you know, for a band like the Melvins, it's never really going to appeal to the mainstream overall. The fact that I feel like they really tried to make good, solid albums for Atlantic in order to get promoted better and at least get on some decent tours and maybe become headliners of their own after a while, and it just wasn't in the cards. Uh, they never seemed to click with Atlantic or with fans. They they got on a bunch of you know high-profile tours, and they were always hated because they <laughs> they just they wouldn't curtail to uh, appeal to a mainstream crowd and. You know, even if they tried and the crowd wouldn't respond, they would uh, respond in unkind and purposely tank shows just for that reason. So, I mean, hey, they were antagonists for sure. But, you know, it just didn't work out. It, the Melvins were not made to be a mainstream band or on a major label. So that being said, they leave Atlantic and then they immediately go back to uh, Amphetamine Reptile Records, AMREP. And they put out the Honky record, which did come out in 1997. However, uh, the album for me is just 50-50 enough to not make the top 30 albums list. There's some good songs in there. It's just not you know, a great album overall. And they're definitely getting a lot out of their system. They're very frustrated with the whole experience. And they put out a really weird experimental album in Honky. After that, they had also done this thing where they did a project with AMREP where they were putting out 45 singles, like one a month. And so they basically compiled all 1245s and put out a double disc CD called Singles 1 through 12, which also came out in the year 1997. So despite not being on a major, they were able to go back to their thing and put out records as many as they wanted, really. So they were back on the, in the indie scene doing their thing. Singles 1 through 12 is, is a very interesting listen. It's just kind of all over the place. There's live tracks. There's even... Uh, two songs that are live recordings from their least received shows on the different said tours in the 90s. There is one from Dallas where they're opening for Nine Inch Nails and they're getting booed off the stage. People are literally ripping out the, the boards from the floor for the ice hockey and throwing them at the band. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I that, that show, people still talk about that show to this day. There's, so there's audio from that on singles 1 through 12. And there's a really cool cover of the Germs Lexicon Devil on there, so I can go on and on, and it's an easy top cover. But the one I wanted to play here was a, a song that was actually originally on their Stoner Witch album from their Atlantic era. And <laughs> this thing is labeled as the A&R mix of this song. And I'm assuming this is a joke, but they claimed this is the single mix that they turned into the label. So it's another example of, well, no wonder the label hated them. If you can imagine, if you're an A&R radio guy and you get this in the mail, uh, but I love them for it. So this is definitely one of those that's enhanced by you listening to it on your headphones because they're basically just going to fuck with you here. So 
Here's the Melvins doing only what they can with their A&R mix, quote unquote, of Queen. Check it out. Take 95. attended the Dallas Sound Lab production and engineering classes that track made my instructor laugh a lot so there you go that was the A&R mix of the song Queen which originally appears on Stoner Witch by the Melvins and if you get the Stoner Witch version that track is unmolested and heard the way it should be but I just thought that was really interesting and I wanted to play it here definitely belongs here on the odds and ends of 1997 moving on to something completely different But an equally admirable guitar hero, in my opinion. Uh, You know, I'm not the biggest Fleetwood Mac fan in the world. Matter of fact, it's almost like anti-establishment to be against Fleetwood Mac. Because 
I don't know if you noticed this, but the kids really love Fleetwood Mac this year. I don't. It's probably a combination of things. I was talking to a coworker of mine who's a lot younger than me, that definitely relates more to the kids, and she was saying that you know the, the kids today they don't want to rock so much per se, but they they like classic music. So I guess Fleetwood Mac is a big deal right now because it's not. I mean, it's it's definitely not heavy at all. It's not terribly light. It's just enough, I think. I think that's the whole explanation I got as to why at least the Stevie Nicks, Lindsey Buckingham era of Fleetwood Mac is really big with the kids nowadays, or just rumors especially, because they only seem to be buying rumors at my store. I'm sure all the other stores around the country if they are. But anyway, that being said, by the way, you should also check out the Peter Green eras of Fleetwood Mac, especially in the Bob Welch eras, Nothing to sneeze at either. Those are both very underrated eras of this particular band who is pretty much known for just one thing. But I am actually going to play some Fleetwood Mac because they got back together. You know, there's a big reunion wave of bands in the 90s. They were no exception. Big tour, big live album to support it. So they have this album, The Dance, which was the live album for their reunion tour. And I didn't go to it because I'm, I'm just not that fan Uh, But, you know, maybe in retrospect I would have gone just to see the whole presentation and, you know, see what the big deal was. And I'm sure it would have been a fine show. And uh, when I hear something like this, it almost makes me regret not going. And I've played a version of this before on the show. It may even have been this version. But I always liked this song because, you know, as as a kid growing up watching MTV, I actually did enjoy the singles off of Tango in the Night in 1987. They always intrigued me a bit. I thought they were well-written songs. So I thought it was nice that when they, you know, they did their reunion show and everything, I guess uh, Lindsey Buckingham would get, like, a solo section in the show, and he would do a solo, like, unaccompanied version of Big Love. And I've always really loved this version. I I like the song anyway, but this live version is great, much like what I was talking about Jane Says on the last Odds and Ends special here. But check this out, man. This is Lindsey Buckingham doing a live you know, version, basically a solo version of Big Love. Check this one out. You're looking out for love And the night's so still
You may still not be a big fan of Fleetwood Mac, but you cannot deny Lindsey Buckingham is a beast on the guitar. That's him by himself singing his ass off and playing his ass off. That was Big Love. You can find that version on The Dance, also on a really good double disc best of. If you just want to be a best of fan of Fleetwood Mac, nothing wrong with that. It's the very best of on Rhino, and it's got that particular version of it on there, actually. So go check it out. Keeping with the theme of killer guitar players, we've had a lot of them on this episode so far, and we're only halfway done. But the G3 tour, which was a big deal, you know, when it was out, the touring package, uh, Satriani, Joe Satriani would put these tours together, and it was always like three big deal guitar players doing their solo sets. Uh, the first year they did it, it was Joe Satriani, Steve Vai, and Eric Johnson. They go out and do like, you know, probably like, you know, 45 minutes to an hour a piece. And then at the end of the show, they would come out and do some jamming together. And they would record most of these shows to which they would put out a live album, kind of encapsulating the entire first tour there and the success that it had. And I'm glad they rolled tape on the tour because I guess one of the nights they got together, maybe they did this every night, I don't know. I, I didn't go see the tour, but, you know, I'm always going to love something like this. So uh, the first live G3 album comes out in 1997, and one of the encore tracks towards the end of the CD here is uh, you know Steve Vai definitely paying tribute to uh, his one of his original mentors, along with Satriani being one of his original mentors. So it's just nice that they could all get together and do this. This is a live cover of the late great Frank Zappa's "My Guitar Wants to Kill Your Mama."
All right, there you go. Eric Johnson, Joe Satriani, and Steve Vai with a live jam version of My Guitar Wants to Kill Your Mama. Can't go wrong with Frank. I'm excited. Next year, uh, Dweezil's coming to town, so I'm definitely going to have to check out another Dweezil show. Always a great time. And, you know, anytime you could see live Frank Zappa music, done by Dweezil especially, make sure you make a point to go see that. Andrew Jacobs looking at you. Go see Dweezil this time around, okay? Don't let me down. Thanks for listening, brother, and for sharing. All right. Sticking with the fun here, but something completely different on top of everything else. And this definitely leads into yet another PlayStation classic. But, you know, myself and Chris especially, we were definitely digging the uh, the pop-punk uh, ska bands, uh, the, you know, the third ska wave of the 90s. And, you know, I, I still like those bands, and they still make me smile, and I still listen to the records. So, you know, I'm always going to have a soft spot for Real Big Fish. They put out an EP in 1997 prior to their first full-length album. But they put out this EP called Keep Your Receipt. Definitely uh, got a lot of buzz, sold a lot of copies, and, and definitely, you know, as a lot of bands would do, especially back in the olden days, you know, they put out, like, a single advance or an EP advance to get some interest going on. And Real Big Fish, very smart. They did the same thing. And by the time the full length came out, people were ready. And I think the album even at least went gold. Uh, they did very well. And they toured their asses off. And they were always fun to go see live. And for someone like me that was a child of the 80s, you know, they would throw down, you know, cover songs of songs that I already knew. They would always play like Kiss Me Deadly Live by Lita Ford, Hungry Like the Wolf, Take On Me, songs like that. So, you know, I, I think they're a good time. So I definitely defend Real Big Fish. I think they're a good band. They can play their butts off. Uh, so on the Keep Your CDP, they did a really cool old school punk rock cover. They did a really cool cover of an Operation Ivy song, which even at the time, I don't know if a lot of people, they probably knew the t-shirt more than they knew the band, uh, but Operation Ivy definitely gave way to Ranson later on. Uh, but yeah, yeah, given uh, some more visibility to a great band like Operation Ivy, Real Big Fish in here covering their song, Unity. Check it out. This war going down between my brothers and I. I don't want no war going down. Yeah, I say we're all the same. Oh, come on. You know, in the division. 
All right, there you go. Real Big Fish and their cover of Operation Ivy's Unity from the Keep Your Receipt EP. Good times there. We played that kind of in a loop. We would, I think me and Chris would play a lot of Jet Moto to that record especially. I just remember these things. But it, good times. Memories puts a smile on my face. Another great memory that I had in the 90s, especially around this time, I did get to see, albeit only one time, but that's one more than most people I could say, is that I got to see the Ramones live. Myself and Chris went to Lollapalooza in 96, saw the Ramones do an hour and change, the hottest day of the year, legit, in Dallas. Uh, it was over 100 on the field, easy. Probably about 108 on the field, I think I checked at one point. Ramones come out in leather jackets and just destroy it for a good hour and change. Man, one of uh, the top concert memories I'll ever have of all time. So by this point in 1997, the Ramones are done, but they did record in full their last ever show that they did out in California. I believe it was out in Hollywood. And they put out this really cool set, which was at the time a big deal because they had a VHS tape and a CD of their last ever show. The the VHS was interesting because it was almost like a documentary of the last show, plus like a, a slight history retrospective on the band, showed a bunch of random TV appearances and stuff. So it didn't actually have the show edited together as one, but it was still a really neat thing. I still have it, actually. It's called We're Out of Here. And like I said, last ever Ramon show, so it was, you know, I've got it here. Still have the thing. You know, I need to take that VHS tape and convert it into disc at some point. Maybe I'll do that today, now that I'm reminded of it. But the the interesting thing about the very last Ramon show, of course, it's their last show, so that's a big deal unto itself. But it's just a, a cavalcade of all-stars also paying tribute to their favorite band. Yeah, everybody was in the house that day. Rob Zombie, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Rancid, Lemmy, you know, they were all there. And even Didi, Didi Ramon shows up. He literally, it's like he just walked in off the street, sang his song with the band, and then left all over again. It was crazy. It was a crazy show. Uh, so just for that reason alone, you should, uh, if you see a copy of We're Out of Here around, out and about, I know it's out of print, but grab it if you can. Uh, this is an interesting highlight of the show, and especially with everything that's happened this year, I think it bears extra historical significance here. So, this song was part of the encore of their last ever show, and I don't think they actually played this a whole lot live, so it was a special performance in and of itself, but also it's the Ramones playing with Soundgarden and their duetting here on Chinese Rocks. And listen right here at the beginning, you're going to hear Chris Cornell introduce the band back on stage so there you go rest in peace the ramones and rest in peace chris cornell check it out hey you want to hear some more fucking ramones what what this is your last fucking chance so make some goddamn noise
right, there you go. One of the great punk rock songs of all time there. Written by Johnny Thunders. That was Chinese Rocks from the last ever Ramones show recorded in Hollywood. That was the Ramones with Soundgarden there, teaming up together. And can't thank Soundgarden enough for coercing the Ramones to even do Lollapalooza in 1996. Between them and Rancid, the Ramones begrudgingly agreed to do one last tour, and they did that, and if they hadn't, I would have never seen them. I love that. Speaking of things that I love, we're going to play something next by my permanent spirit animal, David Lee Roth, Diamond Dave, put out one of the better best ofs anybody could put out in the year 1997, a very legit album title called The Best, and there was one sole new studio recording on it right at the very top of the record there, and it definitely is good enough to fit in along with the best of David Lee Roth's solo catalog. I enjoy it. So here you go. Why Waste Time is David Lee Roth. This is Don't Piss Me Off. You know I never lied to you Baby, don't you get me wrong True to you, baby. Don't you get me wrong? Cause satisfying you, the thing that gets me off. Hey! I do a lot of thinking, some I should think about. Machine. Do the walk, 
love the ball, just one look, I believe that's all. Little girl like the boogie woogie, looks so fine like some sweet sugar. Destination is on the floor, giving it up just a little bit more. Hey baby, can I be excused? I can't take no more. Hey, don't piss me off. that that was david lee roth with don't piss me off the sole new recording from his best of of his solo career called the best and in case you were curious because i was i had to relook it up again the personnel on that song was uh, weirdly enough a guy named jack white on the drums i don't think it's the same jack white from the white stripes but that would be great if it was i'm sure he can play the drums Maybe not that good, I don't know. But uh, a guy named Freebo on bass. Brett Tuggle on keyboards. Uh, Brett was the keyboardist for Dave as a touring, uh, at least on the Skyscraper album and tour. I don't think he did Eat Him and Smile, that was Jeff Bova. But Brett Tuggle was definitely the keyboardist during Skyscraper. And the great Steve Hunter on lead guitar right there. Steve Hunter was, uh, you know, God, he's played for tons of people. Uh... My personal favorite, he was one of the co-lead guitar players on Alice Cooper's Welcome to My Nightmare and a handful of other Alice records. Played with Lou Reed, you know, he was in that team. Wagner and Hunter, man. And, uh, yeah, that's a guy you want right there. You know, I, I, was, I was almost certain. I thought that might have been Terry Kilgore on guitar there since he played lead on the Your Filthy Little Mouth album. But the great Steve Hunter right there. Greatness. Greatness right there. I like the song even more now than the last time I heard it. And there you go. I didn't even set this up in advance. Speaking of Alice Cooper, there was a brand new Alice Cooper song that came out in 1997, which accompanied his Fistful of Alice live album that he recorded out in Cabo San Lucas at Cabo Wabo at Sammy's place there. It was a warm-up show they did where they just played everything they had in the canon for their upcoming tour of South America and a little run in the States there. I saw them on that tour, by the way. They were great. First time I got to see Alice was that show where he uh, co-headlined with the Scorpions. They played a ton of great stuff that night. So uh, A Fistful of Alice definitely holds a soft spot in my heart, as most Alice Cooper records. But I love it for that reason. But also, man, that new song he puts on this thing, a really great song. Catchy as only Alice can be. And I just think it's really cool. Great lyrics. Uh, So check this one out. It's pretty great. This is Alice Cooper, Is Anyone Home?
I know I may be a, a very biased Alice Cooper fanboy, but I think that's a great song. I think that song could have done well on radio had it been given a proper push, but I don't even know who Gar- Guardian Records belongs to. I mean, I don't know if they were distributed by a major or not, but 
I, I never saw this label on any other Alice record, so maybe because they were on a label that didn't have any money, I don't know. But regardless, that was Is Anyone Home, the Soul Studio new track from the Fistful of Alice live album. And I had to do the same thing I did with that David Lee Roth track before. I had to go look up and see what the personnel was on the song, if there wasn't any kind of information such as that. Of course, Alice on vocals. It says Merritt Morrison on bass. Matt Laug on drums. Steve Ferris and Dan Wexler on guitar. I think Dan Wexler played guitar on some of the stuff on Last Temptation, if I'm not mistaken. But And Steve Ferris, I know that name. I, I wonder if that's the same Steve Ferris from Mr. Mister. Maybe it is, actually. I think he might have played on Creatures of the Night as well by Kiss. So I think it's the same guy, maybe. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look into this a little bit more. We'll find out. All right, we got one last song here for the last part of the Odds and Ends of 1997. And a band that was definitely tops with me back then. I still love this band to this day. One of my all-time favorite bands, the Smashing Pumpkins. They had a new song out in 1997. They had a couple of new songs out in 1997. All on movie soundtracks. And, uh, you know, one of the only reasons to even give any kind of time of day to the Batman or Robin movie would have been this right here. The Smashing Pumpkins song that they contributed to the Batman and Robin soundtrack. And some may even argue that. But I think it's definitely the high point. That movie is friggin' terrible. <laughs> Might be one of the worst movies of the year. I'm not sure what the best movie was of 1997. I have to go back and look, but... This one is definitely a big thumbs down for old Joey over here. Uh, but like I said, the Smashing Pumpkin song, I dig it. It was definitely uh, going into a different style of music that even they were known for. It seemed like, you know, because Jimmy Chamberlain wasn't in the band anymore, they even said they might be going a little more electronic route, which they didn't really commit to that statement. I'm glad they didn't because I actually really did like the Adore record. It definitely used drum loops and stuff like that, but they didn't go like full-blown electronica like billy was threatening to do this was the sole track that would give credence to that kind of statement uh, but here you go closing off the odds and ends of 1997 and our part four of five for 1997 this is fittingly the end is the beginning is the end
beginning is the end the last track here for the odds and ends of 1997 by the smashing pumpkins hope you enjoyed that hope you enjoyed this whole episode or at least most of it or however you listen to my show but anyway i want to thank you if you are four days into our five days in a row you are a friend of mine and i I appreciate your time and i know there's a lot of podcasts out there and uh, you know the fact that you're listening to this right now means everything in the world to me and i hope all of you had a happy and safe holiday and all that good stuff i uh i don't say it on every episode but i i do mean it uh and you know i should say it more but thank you for listening 
stay tuned. CNJRadio.com. All episodes of Rock Strikes 10. The Synaptic Empire podcast featuring Randy Brown, a true alternative. New episodes coming soon. Last Theater on the Left with Chris. And uh, I do co-host most of the episodes as well. Check that out. Great movie show. Wrestling House show relaunching in a mere matter of days. So we will have four super strong podcasts here on cnjradio.com by the time the ball drops for 2018. It's going to be pretty great. It will be very time-consuming, but we love doing it because we love you. Last but not least, before we get out of here, extra special thanks to Pete and the guys from Spacebeard for the outro. Go to facebook.com slash spacebeardband for more information, and please tell them that Rock Strikes 10 sent you. Give them some love over there. We're going to see you guys on the next part. Part 5 will be the top 10 albums of 1997, according to myself here, Joey, at Rock Strikes 10. So stay tuned. We'll see you tomorrow. Until then, have fun. (laughs) 